James, uh, thank you for submitting to this completely involuntary interview. Thank you for forcing me to be here. Trust no one. The level of sedition, anti-authority behaviour and advertiser-unfriendly thought crime has reached record levels, especially amongst Australia's elites. Treason. Luckily, the men and men of The Chaser have been commissioned by Border Force to conduct interrogations and sort out the subversives from the Patriots. Betrayal. In conjunction with ASIO and the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Protocols, this is Extreme Vetting with The Chaser. The Chaser. And Dom, we've got a young gun this week, don't we? Certainly do, Charles. The Jesuits say, give me a boy until he is seven and I will give you a man. Yes, they do say that, don't they? It's... (laughs) It's been a bit of a regrettable theme in the I think they've rephrased it. But the point is, uh, we need young talent here for Extreme Vetting. It's been going so well that we need fresh blood for Border Force. James Colley is one of Australia's best young satirists and comedians. He works on The Weekly. He used to run that backburner for his best comedy. He's got a new satirical book out. It's very funny. The guy is going places. And best of all, he's got an ABC swipe card, which means we can steal all their stationery. Well, there is that, but more importantly, we can use him to get to their talent. Oh, yeah. Okay, let's try and turn him. Charles, could you take the gag out of his mouth? Yeah, sure. James, if you could just lean forward a bit. Okay, there you go. What is your full name? James John Oscar Colley. Mm, Too many names, really, isn't it? Where does the Oscar come from? Uh, Germany. Well, that's suspicious from the off. Oh, no. Oh, no, we're friends now, Erica Betts. No, that's fine. Did anyone tease you about your middle name at high school? No, thankfully they had an awful lot more to work with, so it, it didn't come up for a while. Okay. How old are you? I am 26 years old. Mm. Precocious little brat, isn't he? Oh, goodness. <laughs> and, and what star sign are you? I believe I am a Virgo. You believe you're a Virgo? I do. What does that mean? Well, I read the Virgo's horoscopes. I actually worked backwards. I didn't check it against my birth date. I checked which <laughs> horoscope applied to my day and then decided that must be the one I am. And what sort of Virgo behaviours have you been exhibiting lately? Oh, you know, I've been really open but had bad luck in financial decisions. <laughs> Classic Virgo. Classic. <laughs> Classic. Uh, now, known aliases, we're familiar with at least one. Uh, that would be the Zodiac... No, Peter Chud. Peter Chud. <laughs> yeah, but that's Ted Cruz. Yeah, it's already got him under surveillance. So what's this Peter Chud character all about? What's this? Uh, he was, uh, uh, I don't want to say lovely man, but a, a man who agreed to help me, uh, to let me write his first novel by screaming it down the phone line at me. He is, uh... Angry, angry man. He is a prominent media commentator and just wants a fair go for people exactly like him. And he's described as on the front cover of the book, too right, politically incorrect opinions, too dangerous to be published, except that they were, as a real Australian. How real exactly is Peter Chud? 
Well, Peter Chud comes from real Australia. Like me, he is from Western Sydney, and when the chips are down, that is the only part of Australia that actually counts. So he's very much a real Australian then, and he's a traditional real Australian. Now, I don't want that to be confused with uh, traditional owner. He is a traditional real Australian in that he is one of the people who gets to define what Australian means, and he course. has defined it in a circle exactly around all of his qualities. So we'll get to Peter Chud uh, and his real Australian qualities a bit later on, James, but that's a, a useful uh, in to where we need to go next, which is your early days. Now, you say you're from Western Sydney, but in some cases that means, you know, leaving after a couple of weeks or being <laughs> born in Westmead Hospital. In your case, what was it? I was born in Newcastle and then... Um, I still haven't renounced my Novocastrian citizenship, of course, which has been quite a drama recently. <laughs> uh, but then uh, as a child was moved to around the Penrith region and stayed there uh, up until about midway through university when I had to come into the latte sipping inner west so I could join the intelligentsia. And did you enjoy your childhood? You know, I'd, I'd like another crack at it, but... I think I made I made hay of it while I could. Did you commit any crimes as a child? Did you ever steal anything from shops or what was the naughtiest thing you did? I got on a behavioral probation at high school a couple of times, but those were all misunderstandings and I was obviously framed a uh, <laughs> couple of scraps here and there. What what, what My, for? What for? I believe at one stage uh, there was a peach can thrown at someone, and it wasn't so much that I had done the throwing, but apparently I had been the inspiration for the throwing of a can of peaches. So, in, incitement very, to throw yeah, a can in, of peaches. In, incitement towards fruit violence. This is very interesting to us, actually. This is exactly the sort of thing we look at. How do you, as a, let's just say, terrorist mastermind, inspire yep. people to throw projectiles? Because our colleagues in the Middle East see this sort of thing all the time. Mm. Well... It's all, it's all about incitement. You first need to make the owners of peaches feel isolated in their community. And you need to make sure that they have no attachment to the non-peach havers. <laughs> and then the more you push them away, the more easily you can incite them to just let loose with that lovely can of two fruit. Dom, can I see you for a second? Yeah, just a moment, James. Just to sit tight, will you? Should we put the thing back on his mouth? Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, okay, cool. Here you go. I'm just going to put that around... Sorry about that. Oh, I reckon it's quite a find. I think we could use him. <gasps> it's tricky, isn't it? Because Western Sydney, that's that's gold in this day and age. Mm. But uh, then again, he did seem to leave as quickly as possible for the intelligence. Yeah, he's currently based in Melbourne doing some work on an ABC show. So he could be a sheep in wolf's clothing or a wolf in sheep's clothing. Ah, yeah. We've been looking for a specialist in peach-based violence. It's very promising. Let's get back in and take the gag off. Right, James, uh, just a sec. We'll just sort that out. Uh, here you go. Oh. So, grew up in Penrith. How well did you fit in to your environment? Because you said you quickly rushed to the inner city intelligentsia. Mm -hmm. uh, did you feel that you belonged in Penrith or were you more of a an odd person out, an odd boy out? Uh Depends on the occasion very much. Like, my heart will forever be in Panther Stadium. It will rest with the Penrith Panthers in anything they are doing. But the Western Sydney that I grew up in, I, I, do, I do feel very comfortable there. But 
particularly when you were going down the path that I walked down, there isn't a lot of opportunity out there, or at least there wasn't at the time. It's growing a bit now, but it felt like to get done what I needed to get done, I had to head in towards the city. Panthers has comedians. So they have Kevin Bloody Wilson and uh, Carl Barron. You could, could have done that, couldn't you? I, could, I didn't have any props, uh, unfortunately. I don't know where you get a prop. Like they, they're, they're very, very funny when someone has them, but I've never come across, you know, arrows that look like they've gone through your head. <laughs> okay, fair enough. We might be able to sort you out if you <laughs> behave well in this conversation. So, so why did you want to become... Well, first of all, what do you call yourself? Do you call yourself a satirist or a comedian? Or um, You know what? I would pick either of the terms. Uh, I think um, I use comedian when... Uh, uh, in general conversation, and satirist when I want to seem clever on interviews. I mean, so, satirist, it's not the sort of thing that most children dream of doing. I mean, it's, it's an embarrassing term, really. Why would anyone want to become a satirist? I, I don't understand it personally. I feel I was more um, thrust upon it. Some are born great, some achieve greatness, some never do either and become satirists. It's certainly true that um, in the Chasers experience that if, if you attempt comedy and don't quite get there, satire is the term that's used <laughs> for that. At, at what point did the first, I guess, blooming of this happen in your life, James? Were you basically in year six and just mocking the institutions around you? Oh, uh, That's the thing. I, I always had a feeling that the state had to be smashed, whether that state was the basic, the basic settings of kindergarten reading time or whether it was our society itself. I was just, I was there for the revolutionary guard from the very first moment. And was that influenced by your parents at all? Uh, I think it was an act of rebellion. My parents are, um, are very much in the Howard Battler sense. They're like my father's ex-military. My mother was a nurse. They're, they're very core of what we believe to be Australian. And so I thought, what better way to rebel than to destroy everything around them. They must be genuinely disappointed in you, James. They try. We've had some words with them, actually, and yeah, there's, there are some issues to be resolved there. Uh, anyway, <clears throat> so moving on, you decided to go to university in the inner city um, and, and join that milieu. Why did you decide to do that? Um, well, I was interested at first to... Uh, I, wasn't even, I was killing time between going into comedy. I, I started comedy when I was 15, coming in from the Blue Mountains where I was at the time, and I'd take a two-hour train in, do five minutes of stand-up in Glebe, probably bomb, and then take two a two-hour train ride back and hopefully write a new set in that time. And it seemed like going to university would be good because it would mean I was already in the city. That did you was, say bomb? Did you hear the word bomb, Charles? Yes, I did hear the word bomb. That's a very Sorry. interesting use of word there, James. That was uh, um, uh, a Freudian guerrilla attack. <laughs> so, so, wait a minute. So, you, you were doing stand-up at the age of 15, but was it legal for you to be in the friend in hand at the age of 15? Not particularly. In fact, um, when I did my first uh, raw comedy, uh, I was in the, I think, like the state final. They didn't, the bouncer didn't want to let me into the comedy store and then after the gig, I was being offered a beer by one of the other performers, and I got it maybe an inch from my mouth before it was taken away from me. Well, Penrith 15 is Glebe 18, mm. to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> the drinking laws start at 12 over there. <laughs> well, at what point did you decide this was your career, that you actually started to make it? Um, 
It was a little bit of, uh, there were elements on either side. I was lucky enough in university to get involved with a lot of the comedy programs there. And there were uh, like-minded people putting on shows. There were the reviews. There was Project 52 at the time. Um, There were a lot of opportunities for comedians. And that coincided with um, doing my degree and realizing I was so bad at that. There's no point pursuing a career in that direction. So... It was an element of opportunity and an element of abject desperation. And what was Project 52? Uh, That was a group of uh, like-minded individuals who would meet on a Wednesday night in a university bar and discuss ideas, put together well-orchestrated events, and just do everything they can to gather a crowd there and have what show off what they had who else was in that group um there was uh ben jenkins uh mm. michael hing mm. tom walker mm. uh i can't remember if Shea guevara was there um <laughs> paul pot who now i believe does uh still does stand up mostly club stuff Charles, we actually hired a lot of those people to work on the checkout, including Pol Pot. He's actually very good at consumer affairs. <laughs> Surprisingly enough, very so, good at um, deals on ammunition. So, <laughs> so a big part of the, the Sydney comedy scene, the uh, sort of emerging scene. James, you mentioned that your degree wasn't really working out. What were you studying? I was studying physics and Australian literature. What a combination. Why did I you am- choose them? I thought that one day Peter Carey might write a book about how stars work and I want to be ready. Um, I, was, I, I was interested in physics, but I, I actually wanted to do a course in um, journalism. And so I, I had never really engaged with the university process before, but I went on the Sydney Uni website and I typed in journalism. And the course, for anyone wondering, is called Media and Communication. So when I typed in journalism, nothing came up. So I did something else. Yeah, journalism got abolished about five years ago <laughs> Yeah, in the whole of Australia. Yeah. So am I right in thinking, James? No demand. No, no demand at all. <laughs> James, it sounds like you wanted to be the next Dr. Carl. To, to some degree, and I had been white-anting him for some time. I would often hide his Hawaiian shirts. I would just do whatever I can, bend the laws of physics around him whenever I could. Just he hates so it, it when you bend spoons. Him. Oh, he Don't gets do that. so annoyed. And when you like, just turn the gravity slightly down in his office so all of his stationery floats up, he gets so annoyed. That could be a useful skill. <laughs> That's very useful indeed. It says in the information we've got here from... Uh, your people, that you're a young Walkley-nominated satirist, which all sounds very impressive. Tell us about that. That was for work through a group called Irrational Fear. I was nominated for innovation in journalism for the young Walkleys and uh, thoroughly lost to an actual journalist doing worthwhile work. Uh, And who was that? I can't remember. I don't believe you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) We've got some screws here. (laughs) I'll never tell. I will never tell you who won that. And whoever wins Walkley's is not publicly known information. So good luck getting it. Well, they do broadcast on SBS. What? James, uh, let's talk about SBS, actually, because for quite some time, you were involved in a subversive, seditious project under the auspices of Australia's other national broadcaster, which is, I think, why no one noticed it for many years. Tell us about your work with SBS Comedy. Three, four years ago, I started a newspaper, fake news before it was cool to do fake news, uh, called The Backburner, which was, uh, as far as we saw it, the only paper in Australia daring to tell the real news 
where everything else was just satirical. Um, we slowly built a um, small crew. The writing took off. It got started to get a bit of attention and got larger. And just when we were really hitting what I think was our creative stride, we cleverly shut it down. <laughs> were you familiar, James, or are you familiar now with the respected ABC TV satirical program, Backburner? Yes, I, I found that out maybe a um, day after we coined the name. And uh, so the name of the Backburner wasn't the original name. The The original name that was pitched was The Last Post, and to which SBS said, probably not a good idea to start with an Anzac joke, which at the time, pretty prophetic. <laughs> yes, that's yeah. true, actually. <laughs> if only that memo had been circulated more widely within SBS, things could have been different for one of their employees. And then um, we end up, I, I never, I never pitched the name The Backburner. I simply said, all right, we'll put that one on The Backburner, to which the editor went, that's a good name. And I wanted to get a project up. So I said, sure. Because Peter Burner actually has given us quite a lot of our information here. He's still got a bit of beef. I genuinely fear the day where I walk into an alley and see Peter Berta close off the other side. <laughs> he does look quite a lot like uh, the guy from Breaking Bad, actually, <laughs> in, in the Heisenberg mode. <laughs> Why do you think it got shut down? I'm assuming you're now at liberty to say. Um, I think we're getting too close to the real truth. <laughs> I think our satire got too dangerous. And I think, I think everyone, like, it's, it's, very telling that the government didn't announce a super ministry of intelligence until after the back burner was broken up because they knew we had the power to take it down. But you did and get I, some criticism, didn't you, from from prominent people? I think Andrew Bolt, for instance, um, had yeah, some things he, to say. Look, he he was somewhat of a super fan. I, I believe he read our work more than anyone, more diligently, and that was quite nice to some degree. Uh, horrible to others. Uh, we've we. We copped our fair share of complaints and criticisms from inside and outside parliament and media. Um, all I can say is, if you aren't making people angry, you're probably doing a good job. So we must have been doing a shocking job and they're right to shut us down. But do you think it is, it is more difficult nowadays to satirise things because things are so absurd anyway? Like there were several backburner pieces which ran very close to reality in the end. You talk us through some of those. Yeah, there, there were a few that um, life imitated art to some degree. And um, often I read that there were, there were a couple of moments where um, you're wondering how to take an idea more absurd than the reality of the idea. And I think that's a real concern when writing satire, that you want to uh, exaggerate the point, but when our world is exaggerated, yeah, uh, there's not really much else to go to. But I, I like the philosophy when the going gets weird, the weird turn pro. That the world becoming an absurd basket case doesn't hurt satirists. Finally, everyone else is catching up and now you're in our playing field. So one of the things that you posted to your YouTube channel a few months ago was answering the question, how will Sesame Street deal with the difficult issue of ISIS? I do remember this. And, and people took it seriously, didn't they? Yes, yes. Uh, the good people of Quora um, decided to answer my my very important question of how Sesame Street was going to cover the taking of Raqqa, really. I, I think 
that we needed we needed answers from <laughs> Elmo and a guide from Big Bird of what to do. This isn't the first time though that you've run into trouble with American pop culture items. Um, I've praised you, in fact, for many years. Before I started working for Border Force, it's actually a bit awkward for me now. Um, I, I praise you for a tweet that you wrote, which uh, got an interaction with no less than the President of the United States. Can you remind us about that one? Yeah, he wasn't President at the time, but it was still one of those, uh, I, I don't know how to look back on this, but the idea behind it was, um, it would be funny if Donald Trump was baited into running for president, which at the time seemed like a very funny idea. Um, And I mentioned how we need to put bipartisan politics aside and get Donald Trump elected, a phrase that definitely hasn't aged. And um, Trump replying to this, quoted this, and just changed his own name, which perfectly fit within the tweet, to Mr. T. So he he edited (laughs) Trump into Mr. T., I don't know why. And then I got about a week of people just writing pity the fool to me over and over again. I love that in his world, Mr. T refers to himself (laughs) and not B.A. Brackets from the A-Team. No one else has ever heard of a Mr. T, have they? So, I mean, being retweeted by the President of the United States, it sounds to me, James, as though this could be the inception moment of the Trump presidency. And people point to the White House Correspondents Dinner, but... It could well be that that tweet is the reason why Donald Trump is there today. Mm-hmm. I, I stated very early on that my goal is to destroy the state. And what better way, I submit, could I have done that than being entirely and solely responsible for Donald Trump's presidency? Well, we'll check with our American colleagues, James, because if it turns out that, that you were in fact the mastermind behind that, I think we'll have to let him go, won't we, Charles? Oh, yeah. No, he's part of the five eyes. I think uh, we definitely need to give him a pat on the back and, you know, good job. Thank you for making America great again, James. Someone had to. Do you speak much Russian? I don't speak a lot of Russian, Mm. but the other seven people in the meeting tend to whenever I meet up with Russian dignitaries. So I just kind of nod along and pretend I know what's happening deny knowledge of the airstrike, you know, everything usual. Sorry, Charles, can I have a word? Charles, do you listen to a lot of podcasts? Nah, I hate them. You know what the best thing is about podcasts? What? It's when they interrupt a perfectly good conversation for this. <gasps> yes. Now tell us about your current job, James, uh, or the job that you've just finished up recently working on The Weekly. Ah, yes, that's uh, writing for um, an ABC program, again, deep, deep undercover, but uh, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. I think it's a great show. Um, I'm excited for it to come back. It's, it's been, it was my first show game to work on uh, many years ago when they've let me grow within there, which is a credit to everyone there for taking a chance on where I was originally In, there to run the Twitter feed. So. Oh. oh, really? Yeah, because uh, my understanding was you sort of came on as a researcher and, and you certainly actually tweet a lot and you're very active on Twitter obviously in the course of writing for the show. What does that job entail? So um, you're often given a, uh, particularly for writing, we will chase what the story is for this week. We'll get an idea of like some main stories and they will be assigned to each writer. And then a writer will go and put together a piece and it involves 
researching, finding the background information, then finding um, media that can tell the story, things like news reports and such, and then adding jokes in between until you have formed a coherent and funny thesis at the best of times or at the worst of times, some vaguely libelous drivel. Yeah, the, the weekly now is the ABC's premier satire program and receives a lot of the ABC budget, uh, a role previously held by The Chaser. I'm just wondering, do you have any damaging stories about Charlie Pickering that perhaps, I don't know, you could entrust us with to use for whatever purpose we might decide to use? I heard he once hired some Twitter user who ended up having elected Donald Trump himself. Oh, right. And he allowed him to infiltrate the ABC. That's going to make a very interesting Senate Estimates Committee next time around. Now, this book, uh, it's confusing, James, because what I have in my hand here is what appears to be a quarterly essay. Um, I can see the, the, the words quarterly essay and the usual format and everything, but it seems as though a piece of yellow paper has been taped on top of it. And instead, it purports to be a book by, by Peter Chud, uh, an alias and or colleague of yours. Where did this idea come from? And, and uh, you're not trying to mock quarterly essay, are you, James? No, 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 not at all. I would never, ever mock the quarterly essay. I definitely read it just once each time so I can send a picture to my friends about how woke I am. Um, <laughs> but... I, the, the idea behind this, um, particularly of taking the quarterly essay format, is that publishing costs a lot of money and it's much easier to just stick a new cover on top of a quarterly essay and pretend you've written that book. Um, as for uh, Peter, his motivation was that he had something to say and where in this country will you find a platform for an outspoken middle-aged white male who just needs to get some things off his chest. Where is the platform for that? So this is the only option. Mm. I do love that you're um, mocking the prevalence of privileged white men complaining about not having enough resources while you yourself are taking one of those resources in publishing a book. Some, some would say it's incredibly hypocritical. And to those people, I would just like to quickly leave. <laughs> <laughs> Where did the idea come from? Um, it was mostly uh, part of researching the weekly meant I was watching an awful, awful lot of Sky News. Now, any amount is far too much, but I was binge watching Sky News the way someone else would watch The Handmaid's Tale. And <laughs> eventually, and frankly, they both have the same end game in mind. <laughs> 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 it came from mostly um, watching this, being, being a regular loyal watcher of the outsiders and finding that there was a different kind of perspective and particularly language used on these programs that's not seen anywhere else. And I've checked Sky News ratings and they really need their help getting this message out. So I thought I should do whatever I can. Do you think it's the foxification of, of Sky News? I think there's there's some element of it. Like there are incredibly talented journalists there. Um, David Spears is one of the country's best journalists. And yet you have this increasing push for opinion over journalism, which is happening all around the world and is a great shame. But it also, in every, in every terrible shame, there's a great opportunity. It's a, it's a lot cheaper, isn't it? I mean, if you've got a bunch of bloviators mouthing off, and I've been on 
several of those shows, so I know just how cheap it can be. I wasn't paid or anything. Um, is that what this is? Is that what's driving this, or do you think people are actually interested in hearing this? The sense of certainty that comes through from from that style of opinion broadcasting. I think that um, the truth is boring. The truth is uh, nuanced. It's not malleable. It's just not fun or entertaining. Whereas opinion. Opinion isn't beholden to facts. It isn't beholden to the events that have already happened and can be reported on. It can project in any way you want, as far back or forward as you need. Opinion is wonderful. It's electric to the acoustic of journalism. It's just the options are so much more variant and everyone involved is a massive Judas. Dom, can I have a quick word? Yeah, sure. Should we gag him? No, we've broken him, haven't we, James? Just yeah. sit tight, mate. He'll be fine. So, um, so what do you do on the weekend? Really, you got me out to ask me that? Yeah, I was just wondering. You know, it's sort of a bit tanned. Yeah, no, I, I, went, I went to the beach actually. Oh, that's nice. Not just any beach. Up in North Queensland. Wow, how'd you get there? I bought a force jet, mate. You're kidding? Yeah, keep at it. Couple levels up. You get all kinds of resources. You just say you're looking for boats. Oh. Get them to drop you on a remote beach in North Queensland. Just bring a pair of broccolis. It's sweet. Oh, wow. Okay. You're getting there, I think. I wouldn't approve the jet yet, but um, I want to see you break him. Show me what you got. I've got a killer question. Just think of the jet. Me. Yeah. What are your ambitions for Peter Chud? Like, do you want him to get a Sky News program one day? I think he wants to get a Sky News program or to be the first popularly elected family court judge. Either of those two <laughs> would be wonderful for him. Peter Chad recently wrote a, a piece for The Guardian, I believe with your assistance, again, um, bemoaning Yasmin Abdul-Magid's departure from the country. Uh, what was the logic there? I would have thought you well, would have been celebrating. Well, Peter did celebrate at first, but then um, he had to realise there was an element of killing his golden goose there. Like, if you look at the coverage over seven seven words that Yasmin wrote launched hundreds of think pieces. It's like the, it's the face that launched a thousand ships, but in an even better situation for him. And if Yasmin leaves the country, suddenly our resources for what the right can discuss on a daily basis and be outraged about cuts right down. Then you have to find a university putting out a language guide or an Aboriginal person existing. Outside of those, it's very hard for them to find things to be furious about. Yasmin was so useful. And I mean, how do you feel about the the way outrage works these days? Obviously, as a white man, you and Peter Chad are in, almost entirely immune from the problem, but uh, I guess you've observed it. Yeah, I, th- I think um, out- outrage is incredibly interesting as a concept because it forms so many business models from either side. It's that um, the people bemoaning the outrage industry do it for a good amount of funds. The people who are supposedly the outrage industry also do it for a smaller but okay amount of funds. There was a, a quote a little while ago that um, so much of the internet is a thousand people shouting at someone who should be shouted at by about three people. <laughs> and I think that's fairly true. It's now that everyone has a platform everyone has a platform and unfortunately that includes people like me and people like Peter and you take those as you can but I would advise that given the opportunity should we abandon the concepts of reading and writing absolutely <laughs> James how easily did this book come because um, it's it's long it's you know 150 pages or so and 
a lot of time's gone into each of the arguments and you covered most of the, I guess, favourite topics of people on Insiders and all these kinds of things. Were you concerned by how, how easy this was to write, perhaps? It was interesting because particularly in the, as you would know, the way publishing works and for topical comedy specifically, you lock your jokes away and then you have to sit on them for about four or five months until they actually come out. And so when I was writing this a couple of months ago, I was thinking of things like, you know, Tony Abbott leadership tensions, people talking about avocados in the housing market, (laughs) you know, events that could never, ever be repeated. So it's it's an interesting situation, but really this gap has taught me more than anything how little Australian media moves. And um, one of your chapters, uh, one of Peter's chapters is entitled, I'm fairly confident I've worked out the gay agenda. Yes. What is that? Well, obviously they want to destroy civilization and the way they want to destroy our civilization is by loving one another, which is insidious because you think it would do the opposite. You think it would have no effect on, say, Peter's life if two people in a loving, committed relationship got married. But it does. Every time someone gets married, a little bit of his ring fades until his wedding band disappears into the ether because marriage means nothing if everyone's allowed to be in it. The first, um, the first chapter is about free speech, which I guess is at the crux of all this sort of stuff. I mean, Australia has a whole lot of people pumping out a whole bunch of, of ideas. Does free speech work well in Australia, do you think? Depends who you are. I think um, there are particularly free speech advocates believe that free speech works very well when it works for them. Uh, I think that a, g- a good example is, as we were discussing, Yasmin, who, whether you agree or not, was expressing her free speech and is allowed to say what she's allowed to say and is allowed to be criticised for what she said. But the level and scope of that criticism is disproportionate to the argument itself. And I think it will you'll be hard-pressed to make any other argument in that case, that it's probably an overreaction to a Facebook post, specifically when not really that controversial. Um, I think that uh, free speech in this country is, for the most part, very good. And a lot of what we, what we take about the outrage industry is the idea that we hear often, oh, you can't write about anything, you can't joke about anything, you can't say these things. But I don't, I've never heard a case where that was true. It's that you can't be uninformed and get away with it anymore. You can't be Joseph Conrad saying, I reckon this is how people think. And then going for it, you need to do some research and have some due diligence. Charles, can I just see you for a moment? Yeah, sure. Just just sit tight. We don't need the gag, James. It's fine. Uh, you work for SPS Comedy. No one actually is, is listening to you. Yep. Charles, I'm just, I'm reminded of, of myself and of you when we were younger. Yeah, a bit, bit of looking, actually. Yeah, that's true. Mm. Uh, when we had ideals and believed in things and thought that as white men talking about inequality would actually do something rather than perpetrating it. Yeah. Uh, I think we can try and turn him. What I, do you think? I, I think we can definitely turn him. I think the way to turn him is to just offer him a really good package. Well, the thing is, he's so close already. Yeah. I mean, this book, I couldn't have taken a lot of time. Put it, and it's very good, but it, he couldn't have... Like, I reckon yeah. it came pretty quickly. Just, just eliminate the sarcasm, and he's our next Mark Latham. That's a great idea. All right, let's go back in. 
Now, James, mm-hmm. look, you're a very promising guy. We've watched your career for a long time. We think you've got a lot of potential. Mm. But has it occurred to you that it's very expensive to live in Australia's major cities in the latte belt that you like so much? Comedy is a very uncertain business. It's not easy. You know, if you want to start a family or anything like that, it's quite hard to make ends meet. Take it from us here at The Chaser. Why do you think we're working for Border Force now? You're, you're right, actually. I, this hasn't really been paying the bills. Um, this is really my last hope. So, James, I don't know how much you know about Andrew Bolt, but if you look at profiles of him, you'll see that many years ago, he had views that were somewhat different to what he has now. I've known Paul Murray for a long time and I've watched his views evolve over the years. Are you seeing what I'm getting at at all? I I think I am. And I'm prepared to sell my principles one by one for the right price. Have you ever wanted to be an opposition leader? Ooh, could I thoroughly lose an unlosable election? You might. Or you could perhaps, you could be a chief of staff to an unsuccessful opposition leader for a bit and then just go and get a gig writing columns for The Australian and doing a show very late at night on Sky News. Would anyone watch it? Not really necessary. The important thing is it would keep politicians in their place because they'd think you're influential. You could get into a public fight with the chaser. That would work. We'd be willing to go along with that. Your peach can throwing abilities would come in handy there. That would be very, very useful. And the waste of throwing a peach can for no good reason would really get at Rucastle. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Might cause some outrage. It could. The big question is, James, do you want to do this as Peter Chud, having made this start, or do you want to stay as James Colley and we never speak of Peter Chud again? Because, look, we can make James Colley disappear. It's not. You'd be surprised how easy it is to just erase James Colley. Now, especially with the super ministry, it's very easy. Can I let you fellas in on something? Mm. Peter Chott is the real person. James Colley is a satirical character he wrote, imagining a whining lefty from Western Sydney so he could infiltrate the ABC and the SBS. Well, that makes plenty of sense because uh. I've been to Penrith and they don't have James Colley's there. I mean, in the, in the nicest possible way. Mm. We work at the moment with MG Mark Geyer, Penrith hero, He's not James Colley. It was very implausible, and the giveaway was that scrubbed Facebook page. Yeah. That, that, was, that was when I was first trying out the character, mm. and there were a few out there views. He was an ardent monarchist. It just wasn't holding up. It wasn't working. It was impressive. I mean, James Colley, there were a lot of James Colleys out there, mm-hmm. um, but they're, they're generally crushed beneath the, 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 and, the, and, and the heel mis- of civilization by the time they're, they're 25. And the big mistake was making him look so good-looking. You well, know, it's just implausible. I hid that for a long time. <laughs> I, I remember, James, I remember when I first met you a couple of years ago, you know, you didn't quite look the way you are, you are now. It's been an impressive effort. Uh, you know what? I think it was in two parts. First, it took the effort to gain something like 130-odd kilos, which not, a lot of people don't have the effort to do that. Mm. And then I thought, once I've committed to that, well, may as well get rid of it now. Very impressive. So, clearly, you're excellent at creating a character and inhabiting that character and all this kind of stuff. I think your next 30 years are, are locked in. I will see you boys on my Sky News panel. Peter Chud, welcome to Sky News an arm of the Australian Border Force. It's a bloody pleasure. (laughs) 
Thank you. Extreme Vetting is recorded in the studios of Podcast One, written, presented and edited by Charles Firth and Dom Knight. The show is produced by Alex Mitchell, audio production by Nick Slater. The executive producer is Jamie Show. And to get in touch with us or for more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or download the Podcast One app. And remember, no one is safe. No.